Hey, good morning, church. Good morning, good morning. All right, well, my thanks to Clint and to the worship team for stepping in. Uh, absolutely. Uh, Brandon and our high schoolers are up at Hume Lake this weekend uh, from Friday night through today on a special wor- worship-focused retreat. So our high schoolers are going to come back and uh, they're going to lead us even more effectively than they have done in the past. And so that's an awesome thought. But they'll be coming home today and, and we're just grateful for Clint and the crew stepping in. And uh, if you might be visiting us for the very first time today, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here and my privilege is to help us to enjoy God's word together. And if you're visiting and looking for a new church home, maybe we, maybe you found it. We would like to think you found it. Right, church? Yeah, this is a great place. God's doing amazing things here, and we're glad that uh, we all get to be a part of that. Well, let's step into the Word of God and worship the Lord in that way as part of our time together this morning. The Epistle of 1 John, chapter 5. If you'll take your Bible and join me there, 1 John, chapter 5. If you need a Bible, uh, Eric's in the back. He'd be glad to share a copy of the Word with you. Um, Also, there's a little note page in your bulletin. Grab that if you wouldn't mind. That'll be a help. Uh, along the way. And in church family, I do feel a bit strange when we come to the end of a dedicated study through the book of the Bible, which is what is going to happen today. I even feel a little bit sad, like uh, almost like we're saying goodbye to an old friend, but we have been spending time uh, with First John for a number of months now, and so I guess the feelings are to be expected. But come to the end of our study series in First John, we do do that today. And though you certainly would not be counting the number of sermons that we have shared, I do that. And uh, this really is our 23rd Sunday morning meeting with this amazing uh, New Testament letter of 1 John. My hope, my prayer is that it has done in us what uh, the Holy Spirit intended for it to do when he moved the heart of John to write nearly 2,000 years ago. Now, if you were With us last time, you know that we worked our way through to the very end of the book, chapter 5, verse 21. There are no more verses in 1 John after that. So the thought understandably might be, well, we finished the book, we're done, there's nothing left. However, I did mention to you that we had deliberately stepped over verse 13 of chapter 5, saving it so that it could be our closer this morning. You know, in baseball, there's uh, always a pitcher that is held back, kept warm and and ready so that in the latter innings of the game, if it is needed, he can be called upon to come in, close out the game, and and hopefully preserve the win. He's the closer. Well, this morning, 5.13 of 1 John is going to be our closer. And it's a verse we've been to many times over the course of the the months we've shared together, so it's not new to you, and it reads like this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may what? Know that you have eternal life. The last verse for us to unpack has something to say to every real Christian here today. Every true Christian, whether you just recently came to faith in Jesus or, or maybe yours has been a, a midlife introduction to the person of Jesus, or maybe you're a seasoned saint who came to faith in Christ as a, a small child, uh, no real Christian, I believe, can be left untouched by the truths 
of this wonderful verse, 513. It's John's summarizing statement for the whole epistle. It captures all that he has said and all that he, in the final analysis, really wants us to know and feel in the deepest part of who we are. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. It's a statement about assurance, isn't it? John is called the Apostle of Love because he speaks to that theme so many times in his writings. But I suppose he could also be called the Apostle of Believing. He ends 1 John with this assurance-packed statement of eternal life for all who believe in Jesus. Believe in who he is, believe in what he has done. But notice how he ends his gospel. He ends it in a very similar way in uh, John chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may, what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, eternal life in his name. He says almost the same thing, doesn't he? In the gospel that he says here in his epistle. It's easily to, easy to see that they have a similar kind of a connection, but there is one major difference between the two. He wrote his gospel of John to unbelievers, to people who didn't know Jesus. He's introducing them to Jesus that they might believe and have eternal life. Well, 1 John, he writes to believers, doesn't he? He writes to people who are already Christians to assure them that they have eternal life. Remember, John is the pastor over those that he's writing this epistle to. They are his friends who have been unsettled by false teachers who have started to, to, to creep into the church and they're, they're spreading a, a, a wrong gospel about the person of Jesus, a deadly false teaching about Jesus. And, and so this teaching is starting to undermine their security, their, their faith. And so John writes this epistle to address that issue. And I think we've all enjoyed the, the pastoral tone of First John. Repeatedly he says that we are his children or my little children, my dear children, beloved. He used these, these wonderful pastoral terms And through John's pastoral love, we have sensed, I believe, our Heavenly Father's loving desire for us to know um, that we are his dear and beloved children, to have a settled, never-shaking, never-faltering confidence that we really do have eternal life through faith in Jesus. We all want this. In fact, in the final analysis, there's nothing that we should ever want more, right? than to know that we know that we know we have eternal life. In order for any Christian to have that assurance, in order for us to have that, we need to understand what salvation assurance is based upon. As you see it there on your note page, can real Christians really and truly have assurance that they will have eternal life and be with God forever? Can a a Christian really have that? Yes, I'm glad there's energy behind that response. That's wonderful. Absolutely, we can have that assurance. And that assurance will be based on, as you see there on your note page, what we know objectively, what God has promised us personally, and what we experience internally and then express externally. 
These are going to be the things that we would we would base our assurance uh, of our salvation upon. So let's begin. We're going to unpack these three thoughts together. Let's begin with what we know objectively. Every real Christian's salvation assurance is based on something that is concretely true and real. It has an objective foundation. We're not simply making things up as we go here. Our salvation assurance is grounded and it is rooted in one central reality, and that is the person of Jesus. Amen? Yeah. The person of Jesus as revealed in the inerrant word of God, who he is, what he has done for sinners by coming, living, dying, and rising from the dead. It's what we know objectively about Jesus that is the basis for our assurance of salvation. Perhaps you've heard it said before that the Christian faith is creedal. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but it is a statement that is made sometimes, which is to say that our our Christian faith rests upon specific claims that are found in the Bible and then are embraced as objective truth by us. And nowhere is this this creedal aspect of our, our faith expressed more succinctly than in the Apostles' Creed, which perhaps you have heard of before. It dates to about 390 A.D., one of the earliest creedal statements of biblical faith. It's been used, it's been treasured by real Christians for the past 1,600 years. It's, um, I reprinted it there on your note page so you would have it, but we'll put it up on the screen as well. Here's how the Apostle Creed, Apostles' Creed reads. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And everyone says, amen Amen and amen. Does that sound familiar to you, the Apostles' Creed? Does it sound a little familiar? It should, because Clint and the worship team, you just sang it a moment ago, didn't you? I believe, you said. I believe. Well, this is what you were singing. Now, the kind of faith that truly saves doesn't merely nod in the direction of these creedal statements or find them to simply be religiously interesting. Saving faith rests one's entire hope for this life and the life to come on Jesus and on these objective historical realities. It is to personally trust in them as true And to rely on Jesus and him alone for our salvation that results in this assurance that I have eternal life. As the ancients used to say, solus Christus, in Christ alone. Is that you this morning? In Christ alone? Real salvation will always point us to Jesus, who he is and what he has done for us. And then that forms the foundation for all of our assurance and all of the future hope of being in a right standing with God. In fact, here's how the Apostle Paul expresses this 
there on your note page, also on the screen, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Here's how they read. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, notice the order of this, church family, the way that the Holy Spirit lays this out for us. We have been, what's the word? Justified. Do you know what that word means? Justified means declared not guilty in the court of heaven by God. That's what that word means. And notice that it's framed in the past tense. We have been justified by faith. Upon expression of an authentic faith, the judge in the court of heaven, who is none none other than God himself, has issued a decree of justified over your life. Released from all guilt and the accompanying penalty of an eternal separation from God because of sin, you have been declared righteous, justified by God himself. But faith has to have an object. Faith has to have a focus. It, it needs to have an anchor, doesn't it? can't just be hanging out in space, some fuzzy, free-floating, ethereal thing. Our faith has to be in something concretely objective. And that, that thing, that, that, that focus is who? It's the person of Jesus. We have been justified by faith through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Our faith is in who he is as the son of God and what he has done for us as he paid our sin debt and rose from the dead. Eternal life ours forever because he is eternal life. And what is the result of this authentic faith in the real Jesus? Well, we now have present tense. It says peace with God. We could say eternal life. Because those are synonyms, aren't they? They're talking about the same thing. Our ongoing faith produces a present peace with God. And this is not some kind of a a peaceful feeling. No, this is hard, objective, court-ordered peace. It's kind of like two countries who were at war and they sign a a peace agreement. The, The treaty makes that peace official. It makes it ratified. It makes it objective and concrete. There is a peace now between once hostile sinners and a holy, sinless, gracious, almighty God through faith in Jesus. Do you have that this morning? Peace with God. Peace with God. Verse 2. Through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this Grace in which we stand. We stand in a place today, brothers and sisters, of of undeserved favor before God. Perfect tense, meaning completed action with an ongoing result. We stand and continue to stand in a place of grace. And we rejoice, present tense, in hope of the glory of God. Justified by faith, resulting in peace with God, we stand in undeserved grace, Rejoicing in hope. What a glorious expression of salvation assurance those two verses are. However, I would submit to you that they are simply 1 John 5.13 repackaged. 
What is 5.13 again? I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have, what? Eternal life or peace with God, right? Same thing. Belief in Jesus precedes the knowing of or assurance of eternal life. It's got to be in Jesus, the objective truth of Jesus. But brothers and sisters, our salvation assurance is not based only on what we know objectively. If you flip your note page over, it's also based on what God has promised us personally. And that is really important when we talk about assurance. Is God trustworthy, IBC? Is he trustworthy? Yeah. Are you, are you, are you going to get to heaven and hear him say, I lied? No, you're not. Did, you, did, 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 did he have his fingers crossed when he sent Jesus? No, he did not. Will he say, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone? I was just kidding about that. Will he ever say that? No, he will not. Will he ever, even a thousand millennia from now, change his mind about you? No. You know, when we are struggling with, with a sense of assurance concerning our eternal destiny, we can always fortify our hearts by the promises that God has made to us, which are rooted in his nature, who he is as declared in his word. He is true. He never lies. He never changes. So what has God promised you? What has he promised to us, brothers and sisters? Well, how about these salvation affirmations, just for starters, on your note page, put them on the screen. These are just a couple of the many that we could have turned to in this moment. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. Who is that? That's us. And their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. God made you this promise of eternal life through faith in Jesus before he even created the world. He made the promise. Ephesians 3, 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles, who is that? Well, that's most of us in this room, right? The Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Who Jesus is, what he has done, appropriated into my life by grace through faith. That's the gospel. Galatians 3, 21 and 22. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would have indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Mm. And then John himself says this to us earlier when we were in this part of his, of his little epistle. 1 John 2, 24, 25. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you or remain in you or dwell in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us. Say it, church. Eternal life. Peace with God. Forever. And as I said to these, we could add many, many others. Do I believe God is true? Do I believe that he never lies? 
Do I believe what he, that He'll do what He said He will do? Then what God has promised to me, what He has promised to us, He will fulfill. And what He has promised is eternal life through faith in Jesus. Martin Luther, the great champion of the Reformation, the 500th anniversary of which we're going to be celebrating this year in late October, what he was, Martin Luther was once asked the question, uh, do you feel saved? And his response was, no, but my confidence in Christ's promises is greater than my feelings. Is that true for you? Yeah. May that be true for all of us. Finding assurance in the promises of God. And speaking of feeling saved, that brings us to another thought there on your note page. Real salvation assurance is based on what we know objectively. It's based on what God has promised us personally. And it's based also on what we experience internally and express externally. So fellow believer in Jesus, our Heavenly Father very much wants us to know objectively that we are saved forever. But He also very much wants us to experience that assurance as an internal reality. Not merely a feeling, some feeling, because feelings are fickle, right? Feelings can change and be changed rather quickly depends on what kind of pizza you had the night before, how you're going to be feeling about certain issues. But that's not what God is talking about here. He's talking about an internal reality of assurance. You know, when two people are fully in harmony with each other, they're in sync, they're, they're, they're totally in step with one another, they experience what we could call a relational closeness. And it's a closeness that can hardly be put into words we sometimes call it being soulmates or being kindred spirits whatever we call it it produces a sense of security in the relationship a sense of of safety a sense of assurance have you ever experienced this in in an earthly relationship where you you experience this this sense of safety and 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 security and assurance in that relationship it was so close it is so close, a settledness of soul that you, you, can, you can feel it. But it's more than a feeling. It's a state of being. If we are truly saved through Jesus, our Father wants us to have that. To have that sense of assurance that is born of, of this intimate closeness that we have with Him through Jesus. Unfortunately, there are some Christians who long for this kind of internal assurance and and yet never seem to really lay hold of it and i i wonder if maybe in this room there might be one or more than one that would be in that place where assurance of salvation internally is just rather elusive just it's kind of like grabbing jello you just can't get a hold of it you know one of the the very special roles that the holy spirit carries out in the life of a real christian when he comes to live in us in the moment of genuine belief in Jesus, one of those special roles he has is to confirm to our hearts that we really are God's forever possession through faith in Jesus. He has a confirming role to play. In fact, Romans 8.16 words it this way. The Spirit himself 
bears witness with our spirit that we are what? Children of God. If you're a child of God, what does that mean? You're His forever possession, doesn't it? It means you have eternal life. That's really what it means. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we have eternal life. We are God's children. This is God's desire for us to internally experience that settledness of soul that John writes about in 5.13 that we may know that we have eternal life. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit. But how does the Holy Spirit do that? Bear witness with our spirit? Now that's a great question. It's not by some inner mystical voice or some warm, tingly sensation that washes over my body, the Holy Spirit bearing witness that I have eternal life. That's not it. He witnesses to the salvation security that we have as children of God by producing in us increasingly over time more and more of the character of Jesus. We call it the fruit of the Spirit, don't we? That's what we call it. We can't produce the fruit of the Spirit unless we have been born of God through faith in Jesus and God has sealed our salvation by gifting to us the Holy Spirit as an irrevocable guarantee of our savedness. But when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, one of his roles is to reproduce the character of Jesus in us. Yes? That's one of his roles. The Holy Spirit immediately begins upon confession of faith in Jesus. He begins to rework our fallen sin nature so that it becomes a a more accurate reflection of the new nature that we have through faith in Jesus. Here's how Galatians 5, 22 and 23 presents this amazing truth. But the fruit of the Spirit, which is the character of Jesus, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. These are the character character traits of our Savior. And, And as we see more and more of these virtues flowing out of our lives consistently, this is really the Holy Spirit working in us and then witnessing to us that we belong to God. Because you can't reflect these character, these character traits if the Holy Spirit isn't working in you in this way. It is, a, it is a way to be assured, yes, I am in Jesus and Jesus is in me. And as that happens, it produces assurance. Yes, I'm the son of the king. Yes, I'm a daughter of the most high God. How do I know? Well, there's these external evidences that an internal transformation is taking place in my life. I can see it, and others can see it too. The soul Jesus died for, the Holy Spirit is reclaiming, even now. The proof is in the fruit, right? That's what this verse is saying. And that produces assurance of eternal life. In fact, if you have been with us over the many months of our series and all five chapters of 1 John, you know that this is the truth that John has hammered away at again and again and again. Do we want to know that we have eternal life? John says repeatedly, we can know. We can know. And he puts before us in multiple ways 
Three proofs of what it means to be real. Three ways we can always tell the real Christian from the fake, the phony, the professing religious person, the Christian who is a Christian in name only. There are three proofs, John would say, over and over again. The first proof is doctrinal. What I believe. Do I believe that Jesus is the true God, the Son of the living God, who put on my flesh without sin and went to the cross to pay with His life my sin debt that I could never pay, that He was buried, that He rose from the dead, victor over sin, death, and the grave, and that He reigns at the, at the Father's right hand and He's preparing a place for me to be with Him forever and ever and ever? Do I believe that? That's the first doctrinal proof. John would say it this way, 1 John 2.23, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has what? The Father also. You're a child of the King. You're the child of the Father. The second proof of real is moral in nature. How I behave. Repeatedly, the Holy Spirit has told us in 1 John that when God owns our heart and we have truly given our heart to Him, We're going to want what God wants as a consistent pattern in our life. We're going to want to know what he wants, and then we're going to obey what he has told us that he wants. And that will be consistent. To use the grace of God as a license to sin more, which is what the false teachers were saying you could do in John's day, would be to prove that you don't know Jesus at all, right? Here's how John put it, 1 John 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. That's the second proof of real, how I behave. And then the third proof of real is is relational, how I love. In my relationships within and outside of the church, but especially within the church, do I reflect the love that Jesus has for me and for others? Do I love increasingly like Jesus loves? Here's how John put it, 1 John 4, 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a a what? A liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. And this command we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Three proofs of real. What we believe, how we behave, and how we love. Real assurance for real Christians is based on these things. What we know objectively, what God has promised us personally, and what we experience internally and then express externally. We're all on the same page, yeah? Yeah? These working in concert with one another supply us with a deeply rooted assurance that cannot be taken away. I hope you have that today. God wants you to have that today. Now, brothers and sisters, as we would wrap this up, How does this assurance of our relationship with God through faith in Jesus play itself out where we live our lives every day? What does it look like? How does it it manifest itself, this, this assurance we have in Jesus? Well, the answer to that question could could be 
10,000 different ways. Your, your expression of that assurance will be different from everybody who's sitting around you, but it will be very real. Let me just give you one, one example from within our church family, a recent example. Most of you know our sister, Terry French. You know that she was recently blindsided by a potentially life-threatening uh, diagnosis of cancer. Terry led us into her crisis. We are her church family. And so many rallied around her and committed to her in very practical and, and prayerful ways. Surgery was set for March 10th. It was a Friday. And doctors would seek to remove the cancer. On the morning of Terry's surgery, I was here early. And I was... Uh, the, the, all the chairs are, are cleared out of the sanctuary. They're all off to the side. And so I just come here early in the morning and I just walk around here and I pray. And the Holy Spirit just laid it on my heart to, to write an email to Terry that morning before she headed off to the hospital. She's given me permission to share that email with you that I wrote to her. And I share it with you not to in any way embarrass her or to bring attention to myself. But I would ask you just to listen to this email and listen to how it is, it is just peppered with statements of assurance. Here's what I wrote. Terry, I prayed for you this morning, and part of that time involved imagining what Jesus would like to say to you as you move towards surgery. These words are not inspired, except for the last part, which is going to be a Bible verse. But this is what I can envision Jesus saying to you with a strong yet very tender voice. My dear Terry, well, today is the day. So many have been praying over you and for you as you come to this moment. You are genuinely loved by these prayer warriors, and you are fortunate to have so many. I have been both honored and pleased by their petitions for your sake. I know your faith in me is real, and your heart belongs to me. My cross has accomplished my purpose for you. You should know that I have known about this surgery today since before you were born. While it might be big and even scary to some, it's not to me. I'm saddened for the pain and discomfort that life in this fallen world has brought to you, but I am here with you. In fact, this cancer threat has brought us even closer together, and that makes me glad. Today I will by my spirit, be closer to you than your own breath. And no matter what today may bring, one day you will be with me in the paradise of heaven where every day is better than the best day you've ever had here. This I promise to you, and I never break a promise. Take a deep breath, look up, and remember, I've got you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. John fourteen twenty seven. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know 
that you know, that you know that you have eternal life. John ends his epistle the way he began, with us looking to Jesus. For there with him is our greatest assurance of all. Amen and amen. Let's pray together, church. Well, Heavenly Father and Lord Jesus and Holy Spirit, I just want to, before our church family, thank you for the gift of 1 John to us. Thank you for preserving, Holy Spirit, these words for us for 2,000 years and, and then giving them to us as a gift and then helping us to be able to unpack them week after week after week. You have been so faithful to us. In, in, in opening up the epistle of 1 John for us to understand. And thank you for speaking so directly to us about what it means to be in you, what it means to be real. We here at IBC, we so, Heavenly Father, we so want to be real in a world that knows nothing about what it means to be real, to really be in you and to have relationship with you. May the truth of you, Lord Jesus, just fall out of our lives into our community and make a difference for your cause. And if there be even one in this room who has yet to decide who Jesus will be in your life, may today be the day, may now be the moment when you give your life to Jesus and he gives you the promise of eternal life with him. If we can help you in that journey of discovery, just pull me aside, pull someone else aside. We'd love to talk to you about Jesus. And now, Lord, we're going to be in a moment moving toward the communion table and remembering what it costs for us to have eternal life. May this portion of our time together also bring great honor to you. We love you, Lord Jesus, but only because you loved us first. And all God's people said, Amen and amen.